this is our fifth week of this Bible course on water, gardens, and mountains in the Bible. So we spent two weeks on each of those other, on, on water and gardens and trees. Now this is the first of our weeks on the mountains. And God, God is a rock. And what does it mean that God not only plants gardens at the top of his mountains, but makes temples there as well? So that's that's where we're going. Uh, I've as I've been reflecting on all these images, I've it struck me again how reading the Bible is like listening to a symphony. So you hear these um, motifs introduced in the beginning of the symphony, and then they they return as the piece progresses, but they're slightly changed. They're changed and tweaked, yet recognizable. They've been they're in a different key or a, a new tempo. I love that as a metaphor for how the Bible handles its meanings and themes and images. Uh, there's, there's clearly recognizable repetition, but it's not always the same thing over and over and over again. Uh, so hopefully as we've explored this in this, these discussions we've been having, it's, it's stretching your literary muscle. Sometimes the things the Bible says are literal and propositional and uh, clearly understood at face value thou shalt have no other god but me uh, is it's pretty clear what it's saying Um, however the life of god pictured as a river like john 4 or a tree like john 15 is less literal and you've got to you've got to use some of those literary muscles what's being said here what we're given a very rich image Um, how do we enter into that image and draw from it god's truth so hopefully this has been a, an exercise in that. And with that being said, we're going to talk about the image of God as a mountain, which ha- is, has many variations throughout scripture. In all our discussions, we have started in Genesis 1. Genesis 1 and 2, the, the seedbed out of which all the, the growths, the plants of the Bible grow. So there's, there's a lot of background that we've just barely touched on um, to the, the cultural background behind um, Genesis, Genesis's ancient Near Eastern context. Uh, that we, we modern people miss a lot of those things, partly because meanings change. So what we think of when we see the ocean is not what they think of when they see the ocean or mountains or gardens. But there's also things we miss because we don't know the stories that they knew. And the stories that Genesis is talking to. Uh, so the, the chaotic waters out of which creation was made um, in Israel's ancient, in, in the mythology of Israel's ancient contemporaries, creation was the product of a titanic oceanic struggle uh, between various gods and other more primordial gods. So as it, in the Enuma Elish, the Babylonian Genesis in some ways, as it's been called, uh, the god Marduk, which is who's Babylon's Zeus, basically, you can think of Marduk like that, battles Tiamat, who's a sea monster, and rips her apart and makes everything out of her body. So that that's something that's kind of in, in the background behind the ancient Near Eastern context of Genesis 1. Or if you look at another image we've studied a bit, the tree of life, uh, often in, in ancient art, gods and kings that are descended from them are pictured as trees. So instead of just a portrait of the king, 
you get this odd looking tree. Uh, and often those are in high places. And there's also those images come together when you add in the element of mountains. So um, ancient kings would often build temples or pyramids or ziggurats. There's uh, all over the Middle East, we find remains of these. And they built them in their cities to evoke their own divinity. And also because they were producing earthly copies of heavenly realities. So the Greco-Roman pantheon was not the only ancient pantheon to live at the top of a mountain, Mount Olympus. That was par for the course. So people in, in ancient times understood that's where the gods lived because you could access the heavens up, up there. So they would build these um, mountain temples, often with gardens at the top. And it was this, this carbon copy of a heavenly reality on earth. So then you have Genesis 1 and 2. And the first chapters of the Bible gather these myths, um, but also co-opt and subvert them. It's almost as if the, the authors were saying, let me put reality in terms you can understand. So you have God parting this chaotic waters, not through a titanic struggle with another God, but simply by speaking. Uh, and he even creates the sea monsters on, on the fifth day. These large creatures that are just mentioned in passing, but would have been recognizable to ancient audiences. And uh, he, he creates a, a garden at the top of a mountain, and there's this tree of life. And it's as if the writers are saying, your king is not the tree of life, but my God is the source of all life. And those who feed on him can live forever. And Eden, this, we're given this rich, dense picture in Genesis 1 and 2 of Eden, not as a, a flat place, but as a, a garden planted on the top of a mountain. So that's uh, taking this other cultural idea that it's at the top of the mountain is where the God lives. And the king, the scion of the gods, uh, that's where they rule from. And Genesis is creating something very different that looks very similar. So God creates a garden mountain and puts his image, his image bearers there and tells them to be fruitful and multiply. So there's, I just wanted to quickly just fly by that ancient Near Eastern context to all of this that we haven't really had much opportunity to delve into. And, and we're not going to do that now, but I just wanted to say there's, especially next week, we're going to see um, some of that, some of that context come back up. So this takes us into Genesis 1 and 2 and the idea of God as a mountain and God choosing mountains as special places that he will meet with his people. And I've, I've brought this up before, how Psalm 104 pictures this creation moment, but I just wanted to read it again to remind us. This is Psalm 104. He sets the earth on its foundations in verse 5, so that it would never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the places you appointed for them. So you see some of that, uh, some of that Genesis 1 and 2 um, context coming back. So that there's the waters are something which is not necessarily a positive force in the imagination of the psalmist. Something that 
runs away from God at his rebuke, the, the words of his mouth. And when the waters flee away, the mountains rise up out of, out of the sea. So there's this creation moment. And this is just also a moment of further backing up this idea, which kind of gets left by the wayside in at least a lot of the teaching that I've been familiar with, that Eden, Eden is a mountain. The thing God is making is a mountain above chaotic waters. And we've talked about that a little bit, as I've mentioned, that the river starts at the top and flows down to the whole world, uh, indicating that Eden is uh, a, a higher altitude than, than the rest of the, the world the Genesis authors are trying to get us to imagine. But the prophets also show us that they envisioned Eden as a mountain as well in a couple, a couple key passages. So before we move on uh, past Genesis, I just wanted to continue to build this, this idea that the thing that God made was a, uh, a, a mountain. In Ezekiel 28, 14, Ezekiel writes, you were anointed guardian cherub. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. So you can go read that passage. It's a bit odd who is being addressed? Is it um, the rebellious, a rebellious angel? Is it the king of king of Tyre, who is getting spoken of in these cosmic terms? Um, but that's that's kind of beside the point. The poetry conflates the idea of Eden with a mountain, so showing us that this is how Ezekiel imagined the beginning of the Bible, and then in Joel two. Joel writes, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness. So again, you have right near each other and almost blending together this idea that the Garden of Eden was God's holy mountain. So just to pause there, any any Genesis questions before we move on? The plan for the rest of our discussion is going to be um, we're going to touch on just lightly a few of the Old Testament moments where mountains are, are prominently mentioned, but just in passing, we'll look into um, one Psalm, a couple prophets, and then we'll go to the New Testament. Um, and yeah, just archaeologically, um, the Garden of Eden is between the Tigris and Euphrates. I mean, is it actually mountainous? in that region i'm not i'm I'm not convinced that the authors want us to picture a physical place although the tigris and the euphrates are named in genesis 2 and those are rivers we have two rivers with the same names Um, i would be more inclined to interpret the bit about the rivers in genesis 2 as a meaning map instead of a literal physical map yeah so some people have uh, in, in the search for the real eden have looked into this very thing you're talking about and said well it's you know is it is there really a huge mountain there um maybe the earth was transformed during the flood and you kind of have to d- come up with these speculations to make it all work out and i'm not saying that that's totally wrong but in in my own reading and thinking i kind of set that to one side and pursue um, 
if if these rivers have been named what what other meanings might be be being evoked by naming them and that line of thinking has led me to the connection between those rivers and the later uh, future enemies that Israel meets that are connected to those rivers, Assyria and Babylon. So there's, uh, we talked about this a little bit in the river of life video, but I'm, I was making the argument that those four rivers that are named were meant to um, be pictures of the life of Eden that was to flow out into the rest of creation. And instead, what you see is each of those names is connected with one of the, the evil empires that Israel will later meet. So yeah. whereas the life of Eden was supposed to flow out to all these lands, because of the fall, those lands become Israel's chief enemies. So that's the argument I was making. Um, a, a lot of smart, thoughtful people want to look for you know, the real Eden to pin it, pin it on a map. And we'll look for clues in the text. I'm just not sure that's what the authors wanted us to do. It's something that comes very naturally to us because of the way our paradigms and our cognitive worlds have been shaped in modernity. Uh, and it, it's kind of what we expect from our true literature. Or our, 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 If God inspired it, why would he either make it so confusing or say something that was not quite what it seemed to be. A lot, a lot of people find that too, that thought quite compelling and then try to interpret it literally and physically, geographically. Do you want to come back on that at all, Mark? Um, no, I, I think what you said is reasonably convincing. I mean, I'm just looking for an apologetic with in terms of the tax you get <laughs> and uh you know with the flood and all that you can how would one explain it um with a a skeptic um in a way which was convincing um not that you have to kind of mm. it's not the be all and end all but you you need to give some answer it seemed to me but yeah. it's, it's not the most important thing <laughs> no i see what you're saying you 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 want to the text seems to read a certain way on the surface and for someone who's just coming to it it's difficult to say well let me tell you about the, some of the literary rules that the Bible runs on. Um, I know it says this, but it actually means this thing over here that it doesn't seem like it means, but trust me, uh, that, yeah. that's a hard sell. Yeah. No, that's, I, I think if we're going to be mature adults, when we come to a great and ancient work of literature, we have to be ready to learn something. Like if you look yeah. at the, the conquest of Canaan, um, there's so much when Joshua comes into the promised land and, you know, leaves no one left alive and wipes out every inhabitant of a city and, you know, all this seeming you know, like genocidal bloody conquering um, that is troubling for people because that is what the text says, but there's also an invisible 
tradition of battle rhetoric uh, in, in battle accounts that we just don't know anymore. We just don't have access to it. But you can read similar, similar accounts in which cities were not completely destroyed and razed to the ground and everyone was put to the sword. Uh, historically, we know that. And yet the account says that that is what happened. So what are we going to, what, what should we do with all that? Can we say, um, do we have to just take the, what we think the words actually mean on the, on the surface level as the ultimate meaning, just because it makes sense to us? Or can we upgrade the level of sophistication we use to approach the Bible? And I'm arguing for the second one, because I think that that is how the Bible is teaching us to read it. And there's just such a gap between when, when these documents were written and, and now. Uh, yeah. Cultural gap, a time gap. But we don't feel that gap when we, when we open up our, our ESV study Bible. It's something we have to learn to feel. No, that's helpful. Thank you, Ed. All right. If you are reading the Bible, looking for mountains, you are going to hit hit a couple significant ones that we aren't, aren't, we aren't going to touch on in this discussion. Uh, one being, of course, Noah, Noah's ark lands on a mountain, and there's this recreation of the Garden of Eden and a recreation of the fall. And then just after that, the fallen humanity has once again multiplied and builds their own mountain up to the heavens in the Tower of Babel. So we we that is a really important story that we're going to spend a little time on next time. Our next discussion is the mountain of God versus the anti-God mountain, Jerusalem versus Babylon, and all the forms those mountains take. So the in the story of the Tower of Babel, that is when we're introduced to this this other idea, this rival mountain. Uh, so we're not going to talk about that right now, but tune in next time to talk about it. We're, we're going to land for a little bit on Exodus 15. So this is the poetic retelling of the crossing of the, of the Red Sea that has just happened in Exodus 14. And then they get to the other side and you get, you get the whole thing rehashed, only not in narrative this time, it's in poetry. So I, I will read verses 13 to 18. Here is uh, Exodus 15, 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You've guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. The pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab, and all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, where you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. So there's a curious thing about this. Did anyone catch the curious thing? I'm about to say it, but let's just have a, a pedantic pause just to have invite a little audience interaction. What do you think? Where are they geographically? 
They're on one side of the Red Sea. And they've, for 400 years, they've been slaves in Egypt. And when they left the promised land to which they were returned, they were just one little family. No, no one knew who they were. But now, the moment they cross through the Red Sea, their future enemies are depicted as trembling with fear. Uh, I, it's just, it's one of the editorial scenes of the Old Testament. You see the editors, the hand of the editors, using language that goes beyond the time of the narrative of Exodus, looks ahead to the future enemies of the people of God. So you get the Canaanites there, the Moabites, the Philistines, the Edomites. I just think that's an interesting thing. Um, there's, there's these moments where uh, the Old Testament especially breaks its own narrative, like during the account of what happened after Moses died. You have Moses, Moses being the teller of the story, and then you also get the narrative of Moses' death. Just these interesting little moments. You can see that this, this Exodus 15 was written or compiled by people who knew how the story ended. So what does this have to do with mountains? Here in verse 17 and 18, the line reads, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. So the people of God are looking forward to a time when they will be planted on a mountain. What else has God planted on a mountain? Feel free to chime in. Let that sit with that question for a little bit. What else has God planted on a mountain? Eden was on a mountain. Eden was on a mountain. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, Eden was on a mountain, and God, God planted a garden on a mountain, and now he is planting people. Uh, the Bible Project has a whole series on the metaphors of trees and people conflating. So here, here is the, uh, the people of God being planted on the top of a mountain, and a very significant mountain. It is the mountain, says verse 17, where God will make his home, the, his sanctuary. The sanctuary is temple language. And not only will it be his home and his sanctuary, but it will be, the, in verse 18, his throne, the place from which he reigns forever. So there are, there are at least three timelines happening here. You have the Exodus timeline. The people have just crossed over and they recite this poem. And there's also a future timeline in which Israel has already been established as a kingdom whose capital is Jerusalem. So this is what they, in the narrative moment in Exodus, they haven't experienced yet, but that's where they're going. And there's also a third timeline, which is this ultimate future timeline, which the physical Jerusalem will not fulfill because it It is not the place that the the kings of Israel reign forever. However, God will plant his people on a mountain, which will be his temple sanctuary, from which he will rule forever. So there's there's some sophistication here as well. Um, I, I heard once that the prophets paint on one canvas with no depth of field. That makes sense. So painters can use artistic tricks to say, this is closer and this is farther behind. And this tree over here is blurry. 
Uh, the prophets put it all right here. There's no depth of field. So you have all the timelines squashed onto the same plane. So you, you, as you're reading along, you think, oh, that's today, that's tomorrow. And that's like in, in the far future. Uh, and it can be a little jarring, but that's, that's just, that's what's going on. All right, we are, in, in the interest of time, we're going to take another huge leap forward to the fulfillment of the time that Exodus 15 has just mentioned. So you have the nation of Israel wanders in the desert for 40 years after coming up to the promised land and getting afraid because the giants are there. And then Moses dies and Joshua leads them back into the promised land. And I I find it a very convincing argument. If you look at the, Emily, this is for you, the uh, places they, that God tells them to evade, they invade. They, those are the towns in which there are still descendants of the Nephilim there. So the, the giants, it's, it can be considered that the conquest of Canaan can be considered a giant hunt. So this God has um, conscripted a people who are, are going to go do war with uh, the children of the sons of the fallen angels. But that is a whole other can of worms that we are not going to address. I'm just going to plop it right there in front of us and, and we're not going to go into depth but I, I have a blog about that as well i can send with the notes um so the conquest is kind of completed but also they they impartially drive out the the canaanites uh, but a significant moment in that conquest is when david we've we've fast forwarded many years through through the judges and david saul is king and now david is becoming king he takes Jerusalem. In 2 Samuel 5-7, you get the word Zion for the first time. And it says, nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. That is the city of David. So it was the home of the Jebusites. And David took it. And they thought, "There's we're so secure up here. There's no way that this guy's going to be able to take it. But he does. And then the name that appears isn't Jerusalem, but Zion. So what is Zion? Zion is, it is a, um, a nickname doesn't quite do it justice, but it's a, it's an alternate name for the physical place, Jerusalem. Uh, the prophets use it that way. Uh, the Psalms use it that way. So it's, it's kind of um, a stand in name that can mean Jerusalem. Also, it is a mountain, Mount Zion. And Jerusalem is physically a, a mountain. That's why the Jebusites were so uh, confident that no one could get them out of there because they had a mountain fortress. However, uh, Zion is also, if, if you read the passages closely, you, you get those, there are things said about Zion that no earthly city can fulfill. It's one of those moments where the prophets are are painting without depth of field. For instance, Psalm 52, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God stands forth. So that's either uh, a real literary gloss, or there is another Zion, which is the perfection of beauty, uh, out of which God shines. And in Psalm 48, uh, the Psalm reads, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. 
And in another Psalm, it might, no, this is um, Isaiah 2. We're going to look at that later. Uh, there talks about a day in which God's mountain is exalted over every other mountain. So there's this sense that Zion is, it is the physical place, Jerusalem, but it's also something more, it's beyond the physical Jerusalem, uh, which the New Testament will call uh, the heavenly Jerusalem or the new Jerusalem. So in Second Kings, Solomon, David's son, builds the temple, and now you have the establishment of the Temple Mount, uh, the hot spot of God's presence that is decked out in Edenic garden imagery at the top of a mountain, which he will call in some special way his home. So this is Exodus 15 fulfilled. They came through the, the Red Sea, and they, there was this, um, they composed this song predicting a time when God would plant them on top of a mountain with a temple from which he would rule forever and ever. And this is the, uh, these two moments are connected. So I want to look at some of the prophets, but first uh, the, the imagery of God as a rock and God as a mountain and God as a mountain fortress is just all over the Psalms. We could have spent this whole time talking about the Psalms, um, but I, I wanted to talk about other things instead. So we're just going to do one Psalm. This is Psalm 2. The context of Psalm 2, uh, scholars of the Psalms talk about uh, Psalm 1 and 2 as the gateway to the Psalms. So the introductory Psalms that um, introduce the, the themes in, in many ways, the themes of what the rest of the the book is is talking about so the context here is that god's kingdom is embattled and opposed and the nations plot and rage yet because god is god he he will have the ultimate victory and in verse six psalm two says as for me i have set my king on zion my holy hill i will tell of the decree the lord said to me you are my son today i have begotten you Today I've become your father. So the gateway to the Psalms begins with a a statement of God's ultimate authority and power. And Zion is mentioned, the the holy hill from which God's power is established, from from which he rules. And there's also, let's just leave this other part hanging for now. There's also mention of the ruler will be, the, the one who's being established on the holy hill is the son of God. So this is all this is all Genesis. It's taking us back to Genesis one and two. God establishes his holy mountain and places his king and queen on top of it, his image bearers who will rule under him and spread out the flourishing of um, spread the flourishing and peace that they know on the cosmic mountain throughout the earth. But they they fail. Genesis three happens, and instead they multiply and spread ruin and disaster. And then you get Psalm 2, so that by the time that psalm is written, uh, God's, God's will is not done uh, on earth as it is in heaven, but is opposed and embattled. But God says, one day I will once again set my true king on my holy mountain, and who will not fail. He will dash the evil systems that the powers have built uh, to pieces like pottery. There's all these moments where the Old Testament 
is announcing. Uh, I had a professor in seminary who would say the Old Testament is always announcing its own obsolescence, that it, it, its promises are only partially fulfilled or um, entirely reneged on. But not that it, its announcement of its own obsolescence is not an end in and of itself, but is pointing beyond itself to the later fulfillment, which Christians see in the New Testament. And the New Testament writers uh, looked back into the Old Testament, which had shaped them and which they were very familiar with, and grabbed these cut threads of the promises and drew them forward and tied them into their, their own narratives and in the story of Jesus. But let's look at a couple of those cut threads. Uh, let's look at, we're going to look at a, two places in Isaiah and one place in Ezekiel, and then we will jump straight to uh, the crucifixion. In Isaiah 25, we read this. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make a feast for all peoples, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people will take, he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be on that day. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation, for the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. So what's going on there? Um, even after David and Solomon establish uh, Jerusalem as, as God's mountain, uh, the, prof, the prophets are still pointing, pointing past it to, to something, something, some more perfect and full completion uh, of the promises of God. And he's saying, on this mountain, in Jerusalem, the Lord of hosts will make a feast for all peoples, which is would have been unexpected in many ways. And the feast, the nature of the feast will be, it will coincide with the, the swallowing up of death, the rending of the veil that covers, that is spread over all nations. Death will be swallowed up forever in Jerusalem. So this is one of those moments where there's, there's something hanging, there's something unfulfilled, something yet to be expected. And the prophet is shaping that expectation in a, in a certain way. So there's a mountain is involved, uh, drinking a cup is involved, wine is involved, and the end of death is involved for all the nations, not just the Jews. Let's just leave that for a minute. Leave that hanging. Uh, Isaiah 2. Here's a moment where mountains, the story of mountains and rivers in the Bible uh, come together. So this is uh, Isaiah 2, verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the, the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, shall be lifted up above the hills, and the nations shall flow. And that word flow is the word for river. Um, so English, English and Hebrew agree that we can use words like flow and stream uh, to describe the movements of people. But you could also read this as, and the nation shall river to it. 
And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his path. So this is a moment where mountain and rivers uh, come together. We talked about this passage a little bit on during our conversation about the river of life, where I was, again, making the argument that the rivers in Eden in Genesis 2 were pointing to the the outward flowing of, of the life that was found in Eden. Um, and like I said earlier, instead of that life flowing out, death flowed out and became concentrated in these places to which the rivers flowed. However, in Isaiah 2, the prophet is saying there, there will be a time when the reverse happens, that the nations, instead of death flowing down the mountain to them, they will flow back up into God's mountain to learn how to live, to walk in his path. Uh, so this is a moment where a later biblical author is reflecting on the significance of those Eden rivers. And this is kind of why, I'm Mark, I'm making that. I, I, I don't think it's necessarily about where they were, but we can look into the reflections that um, later biblical authors had on the meaning of those rivers and try to map our thinking onto them. So he's saying that um, there will come a time when the, that flow that was intended but then broken will be reversed. And Jerusalem, Zion, will be the site where salvation, people from all the nations come for salvation to learn about the ways of the Lord. And is this Jerusalem as a physical place or a metaphor or something, the cosmic Jerusalem? I think the answer is, in some ways, yes, to, to all of those things. Let's look at another prophetic mountain moment. This is Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel writes, My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains on a, and on every high hill. I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out, as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness, and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel. So you have some wandering sheep uh, wandering loose over a mountain, and God, God says that he himself will become their shepherd, and he will come to them on the mountains of Israel and gather them together. Mysteriously, on a day of clouds and thick darkness. What's going on there? Okay, I, I haven't, those prof, prophetic passages are going to come home a bit as we talk about uh, Jesus's crucifixion. So let's just keep those in mind for a second. So Jesus is sacrificed on a hillside outside of Jerusalem. We spoke a little bit last week about Golgotha. It was a skull-shaped mountain uh, that was had been made by, it was a hill, but an outcropping of rock that had been made by quarrying. And it looked, it, it was called the place of the skull because it looked a bit like a skull. So Isaiah 49, God, in that passage, God has promised that one day on this mountain, that death itself will be swallowed up. And in doing so, God will lay a feast right there for all nations to come to. And then you have Jesus, the gospel writers are, are taking, taking pains to illustrate the steps of, of Jesus's crucifixion and death and the aftermath in ways that 
are picking up some of those loose threads from the Old Testament. So you have Jesus carrying a tree up to the mountain on, on which he is going to die outside of Jerusalem in order to drink the cup of death his father has given him. Uh, it just the night before that, he's in the garden praying, wrestling, and he's saying, he's saying, God, I don't want to die, uh, but nevertheless, your will be done. Uh, and he begs God to let this cup pass from him. So there is a sense that there's a whole other trajectory that we haven't talked about of God's wrath pictured as a cup of foaming poisoned wine. So if you drink this cup, you will die. And Jesus, Jesus goes to the cross to, to drink this cup. So just like on, in Isaiah 49, on this mountain, death is there. It is ended through swallowing the cup of God's wrath. So death is swallowed up forever. In Ezekiel 34, Jesus picks up the theme of sheep and shepherds uh, all the time in his teaching. And uh, th there's this tradition of referring to rulers of people as shepherds. And the prophets are always railing against Israel's bad shepherds. But Jesus introduces himself as the good shepherd. And uh, the good shepherd that Ezekiel prophesied, that though his sheep are wandering all over the mountain, God himself will come down to that mountain and gather them together. And we didn't look at these Psalms, but Psalms 15 and 14 both ask the question, who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? And the, the answer is, the, both of those Psalms put the ethical standards for who can actually ascend, uh, walk again to the top of the mountain, way, way beyond the reach of any but the most perfect person. So again, there's this moment of, of the gospel writers taking these Old Testament expectations and promises and depicting, bringing them into their depiction of Jesus's death at the top of a mountain. Um, we see this, he is the perfect one, the blameless lamb going up to be slain. Uh, but because of that, he can ascend to the top of the mountain of the Lord. And let's think about Psalm 2. You have in Psalm 2, God proclaiming that one day he will install his true king on his holy hill. But when God's, when God comes in the flesh, God's true son, uh, it's not the vengeful warrior that some readers of Psalm 2 might have um, been warranted in expecting, you know, who's dashing his enemies apart like pieces of pottery. Uh, he, Jesus comes as a suffering servant who does overturn the powers of evil, um, not by dashing them to pieces by force, but by absorbing the force of their evil into his own body. And he does, he does so from his throne on Golgotha, uh, from the cross, which the gospel writers take pains to um, depict as his enthronement. He's wearing a crown of thorns. He's in a bloodied purple robe. Uh, there is a sign over his head that reads the king of the Jews. And all of these things have been given by his enemies mockingly. But they, they, they proclaim his kingliness nonetheless. So here you have God has, God has come to save his people, to gather his sheep. And he's become enthroned on the means of his own death by which death will be put to end forever 
and through which salvation will be brought, uh, brought to the nations, and they will be invited into God's holy mountain. So there's all these prophetic themes kind of swirling around this idea of mountain and the Son of God and who's at the top of the mountain and why are they there and who gets to be there and who doesn't get to be there that all get wrapped up by the gospel writers in, um, in the, their depiction of Jesus's death. We're going to do, we're going to talk about two more things before we I press pause and we can do a more extensive Q and a um, <clears throat> at the end of these. I, I've been going Jesus's crucifixion. What does it mean for the church? And then what does revelation say about it? So we have two other stops before we can do our Q&A. The church. The church is, uh, we talked about the last two times we met together as of the church as a garden, or the church is depicted in, with plant language and garden language, you know, bears fruit. Uh, it is watered and harvested. It is also a mountain. If you think about Matthew 5.14, when Jesus says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Uh, I, in reading that as a younger person, I always just interpreted that at, literally in a purely practical level. So that just as you can see a city from a long way off, you are also supposed to, people are be able to, supposed to be able to tell that you are a Christian by, you know, just by looking at you, basically. You can't, you, you should be, you should live the kind of life that you can't hide, that there's something different about you. And I think that that is true. I think it does mean that Jesus is parable but that the meaning is not exhausted there. And if you follow the trajectory of the image of mountains throughout the Bible, you see there's, there's another deeper layer to what Jesus is saying. Um, just as God's first kingdom was on a mountain and humanity was cast out uh, because they rebelled. So after that, God is recreating his mountaintop kingdom in various ways throughout the story of scripture. Um, God chooses a people who will be the new mountain kingdom and that is exactly where the mission of the church picks up uh, to succeed where uh, those who went before them have failed so there's there there's this deeper hidden history behind this image of the church as a city on a mountain and it it isn't it it does mean that you're, you're not supposed to the church isn't just supposed to be um, some holy hidden suburb that every can, everyone can see and see and wonder about but be excluded from rather it is to be the just as eden was to be the epicenter of god's life flowing down the hillsides to the rest of the world that that's i think that's what jesus is getting at that there the church is to be a city on a hill that is unhideable uh, and its life just like the life of eden was supposed to flow to the whole world uh, anywhere there is there are Christians and the people of God today um, and churches. They are also supposed to be re recreations of Eden. They're stepping into the trajectory of the Eden story, which is just God spreading his own life and peace and flourishing throughout every inch of his creation. Which is what Revelation 21 is talking about. Uh, it's doing it in weird ways, and we are going to walk through one of those weird ways that God is saying, um, one day, the mission of Eden will be fulfilled. So in Revelation 21, 
you get an echo of Ezekiel 47, where a, a person gets a tour, an architectural tour of God's temple mount uh, by an angel. So that happens in Revelation 21. And the measurements, well, it, we'll just pick it up in verse 15. This is Revelation 21, 15. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and its width and its height are equal. There's two things I want to point out about this odd and enigmatic and evocative way to say what I think is being said. The first thing is, its length and its width and its height are equal. What, what does that remind you of? So the, the New Jerusalem is a cube. It's being depicted and described as a cube. Does that remind you of anything? The temple? The temple, yes. The temple is a series of rectangles. So you have a series of rectangles of increasing holiness. And then the final one isn't a rectangle, it's a square of with, with its length and width and height are equal. Uh, so the only other cube in the Bible is the Holy of Holies, that place that you could not enter on pain of death, except for the high priest once a year uh, after he's been ritually purified. So what is this saying that now the le- this, this city is cubic? And not only is it a cube, but it's an enormous cube. 12,000 stadia is um, about as big as North America. So it's, this is, it beggars the imagination to try to interpret this literally uh, because it's, it's not meant to be interpreted literally. It's not a giant golden cube descending to attach to planet Earth. It's, it's saying something else. I think it's saying that what the Holy of Holies was, that cube at the at the end of the temple, uh, the, the throne of God and the, the, the hot spot of God's presence on earth uh, is now so large that it, it, it encompasses the whole earth. It's, it's just a way of saying um, the life of God is everywhere. And Revelation 21 says that in other ways too. You don't need a temple uh, because God is everywhere. You don't need a sun because God is, you know, God is here and God is everywhere. I don't think that's necessarily, I don't think that means there won't be a sun in the new creation, but it means it's tapping into the trajectory of the the theme of light and saying what, what that was meaning is now everywhere. So in, in a nutshell, the end of revelation is describing this mountain, this mountainous city coming to earth at last. And it's a symbol laden way to say that the dream of Eden has finally been accomplished and the, the whole earth is filled, uh, full of the Lord's glory. So let's stop there and we can have some time for questions. I'll ask something. What do you got for This us? isn't technically, I don't know that this is technically related to the conversation on mountains, but um, when you were talking about how the prophets essentially paint with no depth of field, um, it got me thinking about how ancient peoples would have thought about time and just like our Western concept of time. And like, Mm. um, I guess maybe like 
should we be uh, rethinking how we read time in the scriptures since we tend to be linear and see things like with, I don't know if that makes any sense, but um, versus like the circular idea of time. Mm-hmm. That's a good question. So you're, you're picking up that thing that I said about uh, the prophets conflating time in, in their writings. Yeah. Yeah. And you're wondering if that, if that was kind of how they viewed time. Is that, is that what you're asking? Is it a time thing? I think or so. Um, well, maybe not so much the literary thing. I'm also an English major, so, or was an English major. <laughs> um, I think just more like how they would have thought of, of time. And I don't know if it's possible to really answer that question, but. Yeah, my understanding of the ancient conception of time, whereas most ancient conceptions of time was much more static especially in the um, once Greco-Roman influence started getting involved, uh, that the, there were these permanent things and like Plato's, his realm of the ideal and our world kind of descends from that. So there's not a sense of progress or movement, but just continuing kind of adherence to the, the unchanging heavenly realm uh, where, but the, and this is just the story that I've heard from people who have studied it. Uh, the Western notion of time was more influenced by the Hebrew notion of time than by the notion of time of the ancient world. One towards um, di- being dynamic instead of just static. So that you have in the Bible, in the Hebrew mind, there is a, there's a before, there's a now, and we're going somewhere. You know, the prophets are saying, we're here, you, you will plant us on your holy mountain, and there will be a time that you reign forever. So God is, God has promises that he will keep, and intentions that he is going to unveil for his creation. He's, he's taking history somewhere. And so our understanding of time, not, not as a cycle, which I guess would be the Eastern understanding, or just as a fixed point, the static you know, understanding of the ancient world. But we, we inherited the linear understanding of time. And I don't quite know if that is what's going on there with the, the trait that you see all over the prophetic writings of, of conflating times. I don't know if that's, if, if that's just a, yeah, if that is their notion of time coming through, or if it's some convention, some literary convention that is alien to us. That's a really good question. Anybody else want to pick that topic up or introduce a new one? I'd like to introduce the image of the city, um, which I find an incredibly rich one. Uh, I was helped by this theologian Dennis Alexander on who's done a lot of work on the city of God um, and you think of the city of community hospitality diversity of gifts and an identity and it's got everything in it um, and uh, to take our eyes on that image 
is incredibly helpful, I find. Yeah, the thing at the top of the mountain in the beginning of the Bible is a garden. And the thing at the top of the mountain at the end of the Bible is, is, is the city, which is, is fascinating. You know, what do we make of that? Is that should we be trying to get back to some agrarian state? Our city's good, our city's bad. Will there be cities in heaven? Um, yeah, those, those are all the questions that tend to come up in people's mind. Uh, I think as far as a biblical theology of the city, um, cities begin, uh, cities get a bad rap in the beginning. Yeah. As, soon as, uh, as soon as we hit Genesis 4, you know, the fall has just happened, and you see cities and technology sprouting up all over the place. And they're not peaceful places. They're, they're places where you can uh, become renowned for violence. And there are places where the evil that has been un- unleashed on creation gathers to a greatness. However, the, the, potenti- the potential for cities was latent in creation from the beginning. And I, I, I'm kind of persuaded that uh, had, had the fall not happened, we still would have got cities. Uh, so what you see in at the end of the Bible, or when God... Uh, when Jesus calls the church a, a city on a hill, isn't some, isn't like a necessarily a compromise, but it is it is a picture of the way it was supposed to be, because um, God made people to rule with Him. He gave us uh, He gave us an unfinished creation that was good but not done yet, and then yeah. He made people who will make things. Uh, so I I kind of feel like this was cities were always supposed to be part of the story, people working and living together. Um, but without the violence and lawlessness and chaos that you see playing out in the early chapters of Genesis. So I see the, the city of God that is unveiled at the end of Revelation as always being the destination. But there's, there's a lot more discussion we could have about that. I think it's also... Um, common for us as 21st century people to see the city in Revelation or even the concept of the city in the Bible as a modern city, a modern industrial city. That's just where we go. And that's not what we're talking about here. I I don't think we should be seeing skyscrapers. (laughs) Um, We should be seeing people gathered um, for an immense amount of creativity and of flourishing life. We don't necessarily have to see Mordor um, or something like that. Um, I don't think the Bible is giving us, it, it gives us the pattern for an oppressive city and maybe an oppressive industrial city. But I don't think we necessarily have to see sprawl or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I Bringing up Tolkien, he, he was, the cities of the elves are what I try to imagine when I think about the city of God the these he he imagines these immortal perfect beings who gather together to live together and make beauty um forever that was the elves are us redeemed in in tolkien's imagination so he creates these little pockets of it in middle earth not to go too deep into um, lord of the rings lore but you you the the nine the hobbit and the hobbits and companions travel through these wonderful places, Rivendell and Lorien. And it's Tolkien envisioning 
the kind of places that redeemed people will make. And then at the end of the Lord of the Rings, they go west. And if you read the, if you're super nerdy and you read the Silmarillion, which is like the, the Old Testament to the Lord of the Rings New Testament, it's like the backstory, uh, you see that west over the sea is this, his vision of heaven. And all the elves and people live there just with the gods in harmony, making things. And they make these um, beautiful cities. So I think it's more, it's more along those lines than, yeah, more, more than Mordor. Tolkien described Mordor the way he did because he had a lot of criticism for what we do with our cities. Was the Tower of Babel like that example of what not to do with a city or what not to do with a mountain? I don't know. I'm wondering. Yeah, we'll we'll get into that next time. But okay. I suppose the, the answer in brief is the Tower of Babel was fallen humanity's attempt to rebuild the Eden Mountain, to, to reaccess the heavens from which they'd been denied, to gather all people together, which is the reverse of the, the mission they'd been given, to spread and multiply and have dominion. Uh, to gather all people together in domination instead. And that's why God interrupts the project and scatters them. But we'll go, we'll talk about that at length next time. And then Isaiah 25, the the amazing feast uh, and... uh, reproach of people being taken away from the earth uh, i mean that that's an echo of revelation isn't it or a preview of revelation mm-hmm. yeah. yeah they're echoing each other i suppose mm. certainly mm-hmm. yeah about i think i counted once in revelation 21 and 22 i think 40 percent of the words maybe it was 50% are from Isaiah and Ezekiel directly lifted from Isaiah and Ezekiel. So you really got to, you really got to know what the prophets were saying to understand what's being done with their words in the new Testament. Andy, this is going a little different direction, but I've been thinking this whole hour together about how mountains are registered in my muscle memory, like being in the Rocky Mountains or the Adirondack Mountains, hiking, getting to a mountaintop. I'm always physically exhausted, spent. It's grueling for me. I'm not a natural mountaineer like my husband is. Um, And I'm wondering how much of that visceral experience of ascending a mountain we should bring to the reading of these texts. Like when I, when I picture like getting to the top and seeing the, the temple or, you know, I just, I think of like panting breath and Mm. coming sweaty and thirsty and, and it, I guess in an actual place of need, um, Mm. as much as in a a place of arrival. Um, so I don't know exactly know what my question is, but just to say like, that's, even you know not just viscerally but even the literary just trying to imaginatively enter in that space of Mm -hmm. being on a mountain Mm -hmm. i can't 
get away from the fact of what it took to get there. Yeah. Yeah. And I, am I supposed to bring that to the reading of these beautiful symbolically laden texts and ideas? Yeah, that's a good, a good thought. The thing that reminds me of is how this, the, the Middle East, most of it is, uh, much of it is a desert landscape. And so you have on, on ground level or at sea level, you have these places that are rocky, you know, often wastelands, except for these little pockets where there's a river or a well or something like that. But on the horizon, where you have these, sometimes these mountains and, at, and the mountains get snow. And so they can sustain this rich green um, vegetation. So there, there, I think there would be the sense of, wow, there's no water down here, but look up there at that mountain garden. Um, let's, let's go up there. What, what's up there? Um, there would be the sense of longing perhaps, or maybe even need, which doesn't quite tie in with your, um, your physical sense of what it's like to ascend a mountain, but does with this um, maybe wonder and awe and sense of the sublime. And yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if they hiked. I mean, they, they walked, of course, and they, they, they were more familiar with their terrain than, than we are probably. Um, but I don't know if people went on hikes like we do. It seems more like... Hiking is something we do now that we drive everywhere. We walk for fun. Yeah, <laughs> you have to walk for fun. That also reminds me of the song of, Songs of Ascents, the, the Psalms around 120 to 130. Uh, that pilgrims to Jerusalem would recite uh, in order to shape their the experience of their pilgrimage and fill their minds and hearts with longing as they ascended the Temple Mount, which was, I'm sure, physically intense, coming up from sea level. Yeah, that's helpful. I hadn't thought about the songs of ascent. That's good. Suzanne. Yeah, so I, I was just thinking of mountains when John and I walked in Africa, like trying to climb Kilimanjaro, for the people there, it would have been inconceivable to just for leisure trying to climb up a mountain. Like they did it to earn a living. And I would imagine that in Israel, it, you wouldn't do, you had to survive. Yes, you went up on pilgrimage to Jerusalem, but just for fun, like we do nowadays, I don't think that would have been a concept in that culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think mountains are one of our, our associations with each of these have really changed water garden mountains, but mountains really have, it is a huge difference. I was looking at um, North Face ads and I think it had like some good looking person all, all decked out in gear and the tagline was never stop exploring or something like that. There's this, they're, they're tapping into this notion we have of mountains as a place of adventure and self-discovery and um, excitement someplace we can go we can go buy their stuff and then go have this experience which is so it's just very different from it it, we have the luxury of having those associations with mountains or the the sea and the beach and uh, or trees and gardens this is kind of a bit of a different tangent but um does this understanding of mountains like play into like the parable of Jesus talking about us moving mountains with faith 
Like, how is this understanding help us understand that parable, I guess, is what I'm wondering. I don't know how to understand that. Uh, we addressed it a little bit last time uh, with the, the tree. So that when he says, if you have enough faith, you can say to this mountain, be thrown into the sea. And it's sandwiched in between when he curses the fig tree, or that's, that's kind of his commentary on the episode with cursing the fig tree. Uh, so I, I rambled on about some ideas about that last time, which you, you can listen to in the, in, I'll send the link out with the email. Um, but there's, there's another aspect to that where he's quoting Psalm 46, which is, uh, says very similar things. Um, and I talked a, a little bit last time about how when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, it, it um, quotes the context, not just the words themselves. So you can go back and read that passage in Mark and then flip over and read Psalm 46, which I've done. And it's not an illuminating experience, but it is, it is good. It is a good challenge to just to, to treat those passages the way we should be treating the whole Bible. Um, when you come to questions that you don't understand or connections that aren't readily clear why, why they're connected, why, why would the gospel writers put this, these words from the psalm in Jesus's mouth here? We can, like hard candy, you just keep it in your mouth and suck on it until it dissolves and, and you get something. And that's, I think, what we're supposed to do with these tricky passages of scripture. Like you just keep orbiting them to switch metaphors. And we can think about them. And along the way, read the writings of other people who have thought about them. Um, and there are some good good resources on, on this question about mountains falling into the sea, which I will send you. So mountains falling into the sea, violence in the, the conquest of Canaan. I said I was going to send something else out, but I've forgotten it. It's gone. The, I think it was the giant hunting. The giant like, hunting, yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, we'll do <laughs> All of those three resources will be appended to this video when it goes out sometime this week. Do we have any other questions or should we, should we end there? Just going to make a note about my my resource responsibilities here. Um, I was wondering a last question. Um, so if when Jesus names Simon Peter saying he's a rock, is he saying he's making him into a mountain? Or is what, that very different? What a great question. That's Matthew 16, maybe. Never, never quote scripture verses off the top of your head while you're being recorded rock okay there we go peter confesses the christ yes what's going on with this passage matthew 16 starting in 13 when jesus came into the district of caesarea philippi he asked his disciples who do people say the son of man is and they said some say john the baptist others elijah others jeremiah or one of the prophets he said to them who do you say that i am Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven. I tell you, you are Peter, 
and on this rock I will build my church, and, on, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So, there is a lot going on here, and some of it we might touch on next week, um, because they are near one of the anti-God mountains when, when they say this. Uh, the Canaanite Olympia was Mount Hermon, uh, which is near Caesarea Philippi. So they are at this place, um, which is ha- has a bad vibe. It's like like the Bermuda Triangle for us today, maybe. Like you, when you think of the Bermuda Triangle, you think, "Ooh, that's mysterious and evil," and you know, planes crash there and all that stuff. So Mount Hermon is a bit like that. Um, it is the the seat of the Canaanite gods, and there's a lot of other cultural folklore darkness about this place so they jesus has brought them there and some some scholars think that this mount Hermon is also the mount of the transfiguration Uh, so he says i tell you that you peter which means rock are our rock and on the on this rock i will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it Uh, there's a place that they're nearby known as the gates of hell uh, and in a sense, that is um, Mount Hermon. So it is the it is the the way to the underworld. So the I, I think there is something significant going on here with Peter, Jesus giving, um, con- drawing out this rock connection with Peter, who is the in many ways the leader of the disciples, and who is going to be a prominent leader of the early church, and this they're on this place where God is saying you are going to be a mountain and the gates of hell will not prevail, prevail against this, this people group that I'm, that I'm making. Um, And I've always understood this to be a defensive metaphor that if your city will be so strong on this mountain that hell will not get in through your gates that's not really what it says. Uh, it's saying that the gates of hell, the things trying keeping you out of hell, uh, will not prevail against you. So you will burst into um, the places of evil and darkness. That's quite a tangent from what you asked about. Um, but I, I think that's part of what's going on in Matthew 16. And there's this, this association with Mount Hermon which we, we will talk about next week and this cultural background behind that passage and this moment where Jesus gives Peter a, a glimpse of his future calling to tear down strongholds of the enemy.